0: Welcome back to PodX. This is me, Ayush Majithia, your host. Today's podcast is going to be a fascinating one. Our guests for today are the founders of Connect4, Manati Modi Shah, and Shloka Mehta Ambani. So I'm going to give a brief introduction about Connect4 and the founders. connect for is an organization that collects, connects volunteers and donors to NGOs, over the last six years, the enthusiastic team of connect for has worked tremendously to bridge the gap between volunteers and NGOs by making matches based on NGO requirements and volunteer preferences or skill sets. And a bit about the founders, Shlokam Mehta Ambani holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology from Princeton University and a master's degree in law, anthropology and society from the London School of Economics and Political Science, Manati Modi Shah holds a bachelor's degree in biomedical sciences from the University of London and master's degree in business administration and management from Imperial College London. So Shloka and Manati, thank you so much for joining in. It's really amazing having you guys here.
1: Very excited to be here. Thanks, Ayush.
2: Thank you, Ayush. Thanks for the introduction.
0: Right, so I wanted to start off with, for the audience that doesn't know much about Connect4, could you tell us a bit about it, its initial vision and how did you all come up with it?
1: Sure. So uh, basically, Manati and I were uh, in school together. We were a year apart and both of us studied abroad, as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, We both did the IB curriculum when we were in school, which has a mandatory service requirement. So during that time, we had different experiences with our own kind of volunteering and things. Um, When we returned to India, I was working in the social sector and Manati was working in consulting. And while I was working in the social sector, I was um, consistently faced with a challenge where even if you wanted to give a grant to an organization, They had to meet certain parameters in order for them to be eligible for CSR funding, which were like having audited reports or certain financial statements, annual reports, those kinds of things. But the thing is that for a lot of nonprofits, they were stuck in a catch 22 kind of situation where they didn't have the money to either do all of these peripheral things or then their on-ground operations. So at that point in time, it occurred to me that, Hey, if we got like really qualified volunteers to do this then that would save them the effort of spending money on something that they don't know about, but it would still make them eligible for further grants. And so um, at that time, a lot of our friends had just come back to India as well um, just live after studying abroad. And they would reach out to us in terms of being like, hey, do you know somewhere where I can volunteer? I want to do something. So Manati was one of my friends who actually reached out to me. And um, I shared this idea with her. And luckily with all her expertise, we were able to then create a model and sort of take it from there. And that's how we came up with the idea. We always imagined it to be like a chadi.com, but for volunteering. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah, you could say sorry for interrupting.
2: Sorry, I just wanted to add to that. So we also, I think, um, just in terms of uh, figuring out how to put it together and stuff like that, we used an approach uh, which was called like... Um, the MVP model, which is a minimum viable product um, model where you build like something super small, something super inexpensive. And then you just so that it, you know uh, you get a model of what you're trying to build out so we literally started off with having a google uh, you know form for volunteers who were interested in volunteering and um, NGOs that had requirements so we went you know to a bunch of NGOs in Bombay understood what the requirements were and we like manually matched this out to see if volunteers are actually interested in doing this and then I think from that very experiment you get so many learnings in terms of what your stakeholder behaviors are and things like that. So uh, using that model, we kept building on, So, we built a very basic website to begin with, once we validated the idea of it. And then after a couple of years, almost about after four or five years of having the website in place, now we're now enhancing our technology to make it like more of an interactive tool between volunteers and NGOs. So I think um, that model and that approach has always sort of worked for us.
0: And I think you all did a really great job about it with regards to it, because it's fascinating that it's like you said, the shadi.com. You're all, you all are playing Cupid for volunteers and NGOs. And the way it started, it already gained a lot of traction in the country, I would say. I came across Connect for back in 2018. So since then, also, it has grown tremendously and exponentially. So I think you're all are doing a really great job with that. But a counter question, which I wanted to ask you always, since you all started with Google Forms and all that stuff, had there ever been like problems where people would say they want to volunteer and never showed up or something like that?
1: Yeah, we actually had those problems a lot in the, in the beginning. And that's why Manti is right when she said we went with an MVP and that's why we used things like Google Forms and stuff. So initially we just had a landing page, which was a Google Form and we had tons of people who showed interest, tons of nonprofits who also registered with opportunities and things. But what we realized is that the culture of volunteering in India is so underdeveloped right now. Um, And in India, people are really used to like, like aspiring to something, you know? So if you just tell them you wanted to volunteer and you get to volunteer, they don't, it's like too good to be true or something like that for them. So what we used to have in the beginning was you would have one person who wanted to volunteer for like eight different things. And then we would just see what they matched with the best and send them an email being like, okay, we've connected you to this nonprofit. And like, you can go ahead and volunteer there. But we realized that uh, firstly, a lot of people don't read what they're volunteering for. Secondly, a lot of people just apply to a lot of things because they're not sure that they'll get into anything. And thirdly, in India, still, email is not taken quite as seriously. So over time, we started adapting our processes where we then, before matching a volunteer to a nonprofit, had a human interface, which is someone from our team actually calls every single person who signs up to the platform and shows interest in an opportunity goes over the details of the opportunity with them, and then goes ahead and confirms the match and things like that. So initially, I would say we would have like one in like eight people, one in maybe nine people who'd actually go now. Um, and that number has now become obviously a much better ratio where we have almost one in three, one in two people who actually does go ahead and do something. Um, so I think that that human interface made all of the difference. I think in India, especially when people get spoken to on the phone they take it a lot more seriously they understand and then they know what they're committing to um and even now when people don't turn up they usually let you know that they're not going to turn up of course it's not that everyone turns up every time but there is more information there's more preparation uh, but we actually have the same issue for the non-profit side because a lot of ngos are suddenly overwhelmed that you know, there, was, there were people who were going to be there. So they would say, yeah, send me someone to write my annual report and send me someone to do my graphic design and send me someone to do my... But then when they got those people, they didn't know how to manage their time and give them the information that they needed. So we and our team spent a lot of time training both sides to try and create first a very basic foundation um, and a very basic expectation so that there's much less chance of that mismatch happening so, I would say that for Manati and I, that was one of the biggest learnings that we had to really work from ground up. You couldn't take anything for granted. Um, and so, we started really very basics so of like talking to each of the volunteers, speaking to each of the NGOs. Even today, before we connect anyone, we have a full conversation with both parties. Our, all our NGOs have relationship managers, all our volunteers get a direct contact at Connector, so that I think has really helped us um, convert more volunteers than it will have been otherwise.
2: Absolutely. I just think, like, one of the uh- uh, primary challenges that we had was we had to develop a culture of volunteering both uh, on the volunteer end as well as the non-profit end it was um, very nascent so um, the idea was like we are great but we had to also go visit our nonprofits, explain to them how to use a tech platform like the email issue was not only from the volunteer side even nonprofits were not super tech savvy or would not check emails and things like that so um, you know we would share cross share phone numbers um we would check in with them uh, very frequently over the phone to help them you know uh, on volunteer management and how can they actually be more prepared to utilize the volunteers um sort of for the best you know um uh, most optimally so i think um it was a lot of like work that we didn't we didn't only have to be the matchmakers but we had to do a lot of groundwork it- with both parties and actually developing this culture of volunteering
0: So I wanted to go to the next question, which is like, you know, which I found really fascinating is what is the work culture like at Connect4? You know, since you're a volunteering based platform, it would largely differ from a corporate space. So what is the culture like? How do you all function? And I I mean, what is like the behind the scenes of this whole thing?
2: Uh, I think it's like pretty much um, like a startup. We've always run it like that. I think when we started Connect4, we were in our early 20s. So uh, I think that's kind of the way we knew how to run an organization. We are also pretty much learning on the go. So we've always had like a very flat culture and open door like sort of policy where um, you know we sit with the team the entire team eats lunch together there's no like uh, cabins and things like that it's a pretty open office um, and I think uh, what we've really tried to imbibe because we do work in the nonprofit sector which is uh, fairly like disorganized space or uh, it's not very structured or process oriented industry um, but I think because we are really really process-oriented people um, and goal- goal-driven. I think that's something that we've really tried to imbibe within the our culture at Connect4. So we constantly encourage the team and you know, our staff to be like super creative. We ask them for ideas and this is from everyone from interns to associates, senior associates, management. Like we have weekly team meetings where we brainstorm about these things, new services, how can we uh, solve challenges together and things like that. And we really push our team for ideas. And, you know, not only do we want those ideas, we also push them to deliver those and uh, execute those. So we sort of believe in like, you take the entire piece end to end. Like if you come up with an idea, um, show us if it works, if it works great, we like invest into this idea. Um, if not, then, you know, we, we there's always a learning from this. So we also really don't discourage people from failing as long as they try. And I think uh, we've been able to grow on the back of that. So I think that's something that we really want to imbibe within our team and the culture here.
1: One of the things that we tell every single person who joins the connect Four team in whatever capacity is that you know this is these are the formative years of Connect Four, and so you should make a founding contribution to connect so we try to make everyone feel some degree of ownership over the organization over what we do we've been very fortunate that the people we've worked with and the people we uh, called our team members have all been invested in connect for the same reasons as us. No one has been doing it for the money. No one is chasing it for, you know, anything but a belief in like this mission, really. Um, And so everyone's enthusiasm and everyone's motivation has been really high most of the time. So it's been really lovely to see how different ideas have morphed over time, how different people have come up with things. And our team is very, very young. It's very small. It's very young. It's very... uh, I think we're very ambitious right now, which is a great thing. Um, and I hope we never lose that. Um, so it's been great. It it really started off, like Mahamati said, as a startup. Over time, we've developed certain processes that we feel comfortable with and that we know will be sticking points. But we always, always encourage people to change. One of the things you say is that one of our benefits of being so small is that we can make quick changes. We can pivot quickly. We can adopt quickly, adapt quickly to whatever the situation is. And so for us, um, we've reached a point in, in Connect4 where we have like 80% of stuff like kind of figured out and then 20% is always in flux. It's like, what's the newest idea? What are we working on now? So there's always something exciting to look to. Yeah, you, know,
0: you know, you all said there's actually a study which proves that when you make your teammates feel like a part, they have a part of the, they feel that they're a part of the company where their voice is being given a chance to like, you know, where they can think, where they can open and talk freely and all that stuff that really helps in team building. And it also helps in, you know, yeah, like you said, they are always motivated and all that stuff. It's because of maybe that that they get a chance to talk. They get a chance to feel a part of it, which gives keeps them driven and continuously to move ahead. So I think that's a really amazing concept. We hope which so. you have put it at We Connect4. hope so,
1: but you have to talk to the team to validate that. I, I spoke,
0: <laughs> when I spoke to your team, they were really excited and all. And they said, they actually told me to put in this question because they really enjoyed working at Connect4. for. is what they told me that they enjoy working at connect for And also we can maybe ask, I can ask this question question so i Great. think that's really fascinating what you will do <laughs> so you know another thing which was had been in my mind is like y'all have been you know the t- volunteering aspect is going to be remaining in the future also so like with technology entering every aspect of our life will it enter this space also and like what will the future of volunteering look like
1: uh definitely i think the pandemic has been one of the biggest examples of what technology can do um, You know, initially, we uh, shut our office fairly early before even Bombay and India had declared a national lockdown uh, because of safety. And in the first week itself, we had created, uh, we had pivoted to doing virtual volunteering. Uh, initially, it started off really small, where we said that, you know, um, okay, there's not that many things that people can go to organizations and do. Let's make a list of things that people can do from their own homes. But the demand for that was so high during the pandemic um, that it kept evolving to now becoming almost an offering of its own, which Manati can t- talk more about because she's really spearheaded that. But uh, even beyond virtual volunteering, which we'll discuss, I think there's a lot that technology will enable for volunteering with things like geotagging and things like that, where you can literally be in a location and at some point be like, oh, I want to volunteer and you can find things around you. These are all things that we've worked on and ideas we've had. Another thing that we really wanted to do using technology is to f- quantify the value of volunteering, uh, to figure out an algorithm or a model that can tell you that for every hour that a person does. We have a very rough one that we use for our website, but essentially to eventually in the long run, show people also that just by you are donating one hour of time, even in a year, the amount of difference that you can make is considerable and things like that. So that's another thing. Um, One of the things that we, I think, were the first people to do and use technology for was to create an algorithm. So when you enter a platform, just the way you put in, like, you know, um, I like to do art and I like to teach English or whatever, it would accordingly show you opportunities that are suited for you. Over time, we feel like using data and things like that, we'll be able to customize it to an extent where you're, satisfaction ratio with your volunteering opportunity will almost reach 100 because you will know exactly what you like, how close to your home you want it, at home if you want it, um, whether you can do multiple projects at the same time. I think all of these things are where technology will lead us with volunteering. So things should become easier. Basically, I think that technology will make it easier and easier for you to convert a desire to give into an actual act of giving.
2: Yeah, so just um, to add to that, I think technology plays a really important role in almost every industry now. So I don't think there's um, any industry or any product or service that can't be enhanced using technology. So uh, like, shloka said obviously it'll be much more targeted and as things are you know targeted towards your preference you're more likely to do it uh but on the other hand i also think it's just made it a lot made volunteering a lot more accessible so uh, one of the reasons we saw um I mean obviously when we started connect for virtual volunteering was a very very small part of what we did um and i think that was the general sort of volunteering landscape in india um at that point and i'm talking about like 2015 through to 2020 just before covid happened and um as soon as covid happened i think um it, it's, we've been working from like every single day that uh, we went into a virtual model of work and uh, nothing really stopped. I think everyone was just thinking about how can we take this online? And when we did that, we realized that it's made people so much closer. The kind of impact that we've created in the last two years. Um, and I'm saying this from March 2020 till now, um, the last 20 odd months has been much more uh than we did in the first initial four or five years and i think that's because one of like inherently you're going if you want to do something good and you're going to spend like two hours to go to like say a dog shelter to play with animals or you know to a center to teach kids um english or something like that um just to teach them for two hours in the city or most metros of india you're probably going to spend another two hours just commuting to and fro, right? So like half a day is gonna go, but now you can do this literally in one and a half, two hours on a Zoom call. So people are like, yeah, I don't mind spending that much time um, you know, doing these things. Um, I also think there was a like a push that gave virtual volunteering this kind of traction was that uh, people really wanted to make a difference during the pandemic, like they were feeling so helpless. Um, that they wanted to do something. So I think that just aligned with what technology enabled us to do. So, um, and it was like amazing. There were obviously roadblocks and challenges like, a lot like the nonprofit side of uh, operations for us like a lot of kids didn't have access to devices um and things like that it's so it wasn't like seamless but i think um you can just start to get the ball rolling i think most nonprofits had have fundraisers where people could donate devices and things like that so that their beneficiaries could access like online tutorials and online classes through which our volunteers engage with them so i think um Overall, um, technology is definitely an enabler and it's just going to continue to do so because um, I think it obviously makes things a lot easier for people.
0: But, you know, I wanted to ask you this, like what are some examples of virtual volunteering? Like one of them you said is teaching. What other things can volunteers do when they are virtually volunteering?
1: We actually have come up with a whole program uh, which is called micro-volunteering. Uh, which were really small, small, small things that people could do. So there were those and then there were much larger things like Manatee mentioned, like teaching and things like that, which also happened. We were doing webinars. We were doing, honestly, there was almost anything that you could think of. We had as a virtual volunteering opportunity. We had graphic designing opportunities. We had people um, sign up for COVID support. We had people who are educating other people on different um, aspects we had just spending time with uh, old age home people just over like video calls and zoom um there were so many things i was writing uh copy for different organizations i don't know many there was so yeah. many. Um, so
2: just um so we sort of deba- we bucketed um you know virtual volunteering into a couple of uh, categories Um, So we define one as like beneficiary interactions. That's when you directly um, interact through a virtual call or a Zoom call or something like that with beneficiaries at an NGO. So you could be teaching them a skill, you could be playing some recreational games with them, you could be, um, you know, um, playing a treasure hunter quiz, like all the sort of things that we did in lockdown. Um, Um, and stuff like that Uh, you could be doing uh, on uh, zoom also more skill building kind of opportunities like Shluka mentioned like resume building and career guidance and uh, mock interviews and that's all part of beneficiary interaction so basically you're interacting directly with the beneficiary another category for virtual volunteering is like content creation so you're creating kind of content digital content for NGOs so this could be content they can use on their social pages so for events and things like that, teaching content which the NGOs can use to teach their uh, kids. It could be blogs, translating documents. Um, all of this is sort of done virtually. We had like one really interesting um, event that we had is there was an NGO that worked with specially abled people and they wanted... Um, so they had like their uh, beneficiaries of so the specially able people used to cook meals and serve it within their community. So they had recipes for these meals. So they wanted these recipes to be more engaging for the specially able people rather than just written text. So we had volunteers who graphic design these into like a recipe book uh, for the volunteer, I mean, for the beneficiary. So that's more visually appealing to them and they could like sort of, um, you know, um, be more interested in what they were doing through the pandemic. So that was a really interesting um, opportunity we had. So we've had like a bunch of... Skill-based content creation, beneficiary interaction, recreational games. Um, like Shloka mentioned, there was even COVID relief happening and uh, vaccination awareness that was happening via volunteering. So we would have lists of pe- beneficiaries and uh, communities which our volunteers would call and inform them about like the benefits of taking a vaccine or how to be follow COVID safety protocols and things like that. So um I think all of this was done virtually. I think besides planting trees and cleaning like beaches or like public spaces uh, pretty much everything has moved to a virtual model.
0: I I think it's like an amazing thing which you all did over the lockdown and yeah it was obviously a big challenge which you all managed to overcome and have a huge impact on it so I think that was really beautiful.
1: Thank you. you. Actually it's only possible because people wanted to do it so it's really all credit to
0: Shout out yeah. to the volunteers. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to ask you, both of y'all have played a huge role in growing connect for and making volunteering easy. So what are some challenges that y'all faced over the years and how do y'all deal with them? Like one of the challenges which y'all mentioned earlier was the one where volunteers didn't show up, you know, and then y'all worked with technology and all, but what were some other challenges that y'all had faced over time and how do y'all deal with those?
1: I think we've had a lot of challenges um, and I'm not sure that we've dealt with all of them yet. I think we've just found ways to navigate uh, in the most effective way or in the least destructive way, actually. So one of them was definitely the level of disorganization in the sector, uh, which we mentioned earlier, which is what was the reason I think that a lot of volunteers weren't showing up or nonprofits were not being able to get the benefit of volunteers. That we could work with a lot and we spent a lot on training. We invested a lot of our time in training uh, both parties um we also created a lot of structures with a lot a lot of information we believed in like extra extra information extraction and data collection um which has helped us a lot another challenge that we've seen is that uh, in the in the social sector um generally like talent is hard to come by it's not super easy to have a team that sticks for a very long time you have to get used to having uh people coming in and people going out and things like that. That's why I think it's really important. Uh, at least what Manati and I discussed is at no point in time, anyone, including ourselves, should feel indispensable. You should always, the work should be able to be carried out by whoever is there. It doesn't have to be restricted to only one individual. And that's why most of the people who come into our organization initially are at least trained across the board. So if ever there's a need, then someone can just step into someone else's shoes. Someone can start using the skills that they've, used in another job, you know, across the board. So what we realized is the work has to define um, the role and not the person. And I think that was a big learning for us because in the, in the beginning, we were very people dependent. So every time someone left the organization, we were like, oh my God, now we do this and now we, we do that. But we managed and every time we felt like actually, you know, it was better for us because we learned so much. So there was, um, you know, that was another uh, another big challenge that we had which we overcame. And then the third challenge that we have had, which you know all organizations have, is that we have attempted different initiatives which have failed. Um, we tried this thing called premier volunteering. We um, we tried uh, macro. We did a bunch of different projects in the middle, which weren't as successful as some of our other initiatives. But to us, um, failure is not a challenge. Actually, failure has been the biggest lesson. Like Manushi said earlier in in this uh, call. Um, failure really for us has been the biggest teacher so it's not something that we avoid it's something we embrace it's just that we try to recognize early and sort of not push something just because we feel strongly about it so i think for us a personal challenge was to remove like personal emotion from professional decision making so no matter how badly we felt like this is what india needs right now if the data indicated otherwise we have to be okay with recognizing that you know maybe for a later time or for now this is what we want to focus on so i think that was another thing and a third challenge a fourth challenge that we consistently face is there's just so much that you can do It's an overwhelming number of options in terms of what a volunteer or what volunteering in India can look like. And so we feel at every point in time, because of restrictions based on like the number of people we have, the culture of volunteering in India, the kind of funding that nonprofits receive, you're always making choices about, uh, you know, who do you want? What do you want to focus on right now? What do you want to do at this exact moment in time? So I think when I reflect on it, these are the four challenges that stand out to me. Um, Manu, what do
2: you think? yeah I, I agree with um, Shloka. I think uh, for me the sort of uh, if I reflect on the last sort of six years um, the biggest challenges for me has just been like adding structure and process to a Um, disorganized space and a disorganized industry. Uh, Obviously it it was great, like Connect4 almost had a first mover advantage because we were one of the first few volunteering platforms and aggregators that were trying to do this, especially those that the one that focused on um, individual volunteering um, and not only like corporate volunteering. So um, obviously that was an advantage, but also that meant that we really needed to set the grounds create awareness um drive traction to the you know to our page and you know like when we say things like marketing or digital marketing you're not only competing sort of within your industry you're competing for a person's like time span like the if you like we've recruited about 30,000 volunteers over the last six years just uh, almost with a zero spend on marketing organically grown or uh, through digital and social platforms Um, and obviously collaborations with colleges and groups and stuff like that. But uh, I think this has been a great, learning is that you're actually competing for someone's attention like span or time so they're going to spend 10 minutes and you need to make them interested enough and to know at least what connect is and land on your website right and they're like seeing thousands of things that they're probably interested in at that time I think when we had that kind of um learning and insight um I remember there was a phase um this was I believe in 2015 2015 or 2016 where we had taken about five six months to just grow from zero to 500 volunteers and um like straight from there like we're like how do you scale okay maybe this was great in a pilot phase when you were working with like friends and friends of friends but how do you take it to the next level right um and that's when we started thinking more about like uh how can we market with obviously a low spend and stuff so i think we just realized like um that was a challenge but you need to just understand who your audience is and then we started creating content that was appealing to young people so if you see our pages and stuff like that we're doing like volunteering related reels and volunteering related memes and things like that so the audience sort of relates to it so um I think that was like two of the key challenges that I faced in the last six years.
0: Yeah, I've I've been seeing that a lot lately, you know, I've been noticing that there are now certain job aspects where there is a chief meme officer. So people (laughs) are actually hiring people who can create memes and then working for them. So another thing which I wanted to ask you, this is the last question with regards to connect for, which is with volunteering and amounts of donation increasing as people are becoming more and more aware What do you think is the future of India going to look like in this aspect by 2050 or so, I would say? I would ask.
1: Uh, We are very optimistic that it's going to look super bright. Um, One of the things that we are very, very hopeful about is that India has such a young population. And as people become more tech literate and have more access to technology, we are hoping that people will use more and more platforms like Connect4 and do more and more for organizations in their communities and in general across India. Uh, Another thing that we are very hopeful about is that just the way that India has now mandated CSR since 2013, they will allow employee engagement also to be considered as CSR compliance. And uh, we hope that over time what happens is we manage to create a culture in India using everything that's building around us to really create ground up change to create a holistic change um right from the beginning Manthi and i were never interested in reinventing the wheel we're fully aware that there are organizations doing fantastic work to help so many different communities that need it but what we are keen on doing is seeing how our work can supplement that and help everyone work better um i think over time what we recognize is that technology is the biggest enabler And in our goal and in our mission of being an aggregator to support the social sector in India, uh, we feel that things look really, really bright. Things look very feasible. We have big dreams uh, and we're hoping we'll achieve them.
0: I think it's really amazing that it will happen. I I think it will happen in the future. So let's hope that it works out that way as planned. And I think then it'll be really great for our country and towards the growth of it for sure. I want to start off with this really cool thing. So, you know, y'all you have obviously built Connect4 to such great extent. So, you know, starting something new and experimenting requires some level of self-awareness and understanding of oneself. So I wanted to know, what did y'all learn about yourselves and how did y'all you give yourselves the permission to experiment, even when you knew there would be a chance of failure?
2: Um, I think like we discussed, uh, briefly in the, um, previous, uh, section, uh, I don't think, uh, failure ever scared us and it's sort of been our biggest teacher. I think we've had the greatest learnings, uh, from the times that we failed. Um, and I think, um. It's always helped us think better, give us more clarity um, and helped us reflect more. I think if you do something and it's kind of right, you don't spend so much time reflecting on it or, or thinking about how could you have done this better or what could you have done differently. Um, So I think whenever we've uh, sort of um, failed or something's not worked out, so if we've tried like a new service. um. Or you know, like I'll give you an example. Um, When we thought of expanding outside of Mumbai, um, we decided that the next sort of city we would go to would be like Bangalore, and we did like an entire study to evaluate which next city would we go to, and the conclusion was Bangalore. And we just thought that the model that we should use is have a team set up over there. And um, we we'll obviously have a headquarters in Mumbai and like they'll run operations there. But I think what was extremely challenging for us was to remotely manage a team um set up in a different city. And I think um because of that, we were not able to sort of get the same kind of traction uh, that we got uh, in Mumbai. And I think a year or so into having a team there, we realized that it would be much better to pivot our model and have, uh, you know, run everything entirely from Mumbai, have team members visit as and when wanted. Um, And I think that model works much better for us. But I think only because we failed and we realized this, we'll be able to decide this. And that's helped us grow so much faster into other cities. So now we're present in like, all metros across India. And I think if we had to actually set up teams in every single city, it would have taken us much longer and probably would have been more expensive to um, set up these uh, chapters across India. So I think uh, just never being afraid to sort of learn and like reflecting on that. And I think another point that I wanted to mention is that I think when you kind of fail, um, you should always go back and look at what the data was suggesting um i think a lot of entrepreneurs make decisions based on like gut feeling and i think even we've done that um and i think that is obviously one way of decision making but you just always need to cross check whether the data is kind of telling you the same thing you may still go ahead with your gut but if you don't end up you know succeeding i think the data will always tell you a different story so for us that's definitely been uh something that we've used as a way to you know sort of been like a guiding star as to like what do our volunteers want what's the feedback saying what do our nonprofits want we like keep going back to that data
1: well i think to answer your earlier question also ayush um, some things we learned about ourselves is that we are very impact driven. We're not we're not so concerned um, and fixed on our own ideas so much as we are about what we want to achieve. Um, and that's what we're always driving at. The second thing is we realized that while gut instinct has a huge part and should play a huge part in a lot of decision making, you cannot let it override uh, data because um, I think what we know and what we think we know might be two very different things in a lot of situations. So one of the other things like manti mentioned is that you're never afraid to learn, never afraid to change your mind or admit that you made a wrong call. Um, and I think all of these things are things we picked up. Uh, another thing that we learned, which we'd never had experience with before was how to manage people and how to manage teams, how to make decisions that work, not just for us, but also for a larger group and, uh, um, how to make sure that everything that we're doing is is keeping in mind what our end goal is instead of just picking, because both Manati and I are extremely detail-oriented people. So we spent a lot of time in the beginning just looking at like really minute things. And over time, we realized that yes, like details matter, but the big picture matters the most. And you have to look at how everything is adding up at all points in time, so you don't lose focus of what you have to do. And I think that's what helped us uh, stay on track in most
0: of our last six years. You know, I I don't have like a similar story, but for me, I'll tell you what I learned about myself over the past years and through failures. Earlier, I think I had like um five YouTube channels, and all of them had like failed and all that stuff. So I kept on trying and trying and experimenting, like you said to look at the different types of data and all that stuff. So what was happening was there were two parts. One, my last channel, I think what happened was I put these fake acts and videos and it was working. But then I had to ask myself, is this the legacy that I want to leave behind? Even though the numbers were going good. And that's when I think I also followed my gut instinct and I decided, no, I don't really want to put out this kind of content and to be known for this person and all. And yeah, I followed my, I kind of like, that's what I did. And I followed my gut, I would say. And I decided, and I deleted that channel very impulsively and then shifted different things and finally came to podcasts. And yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting for me too. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you all this, like, how does one find your purpose and meaning in life? Like, How did y'all discover your purpose and know it was the right thing?
2: Um, I think it's just a bit of like trial and error um, and I think that's sort of what uh, your 20s or I guess any time in life is for but um, it's basically like you do something you realize at the end of the day is this something that's giving me a sense of like accomplishment or fulfillment or is it like am I happy doing this? Um. I mean, if that is, then you kind of realize, okay, this is what I want to do. And you find more things uh, like that. And that's sort of where you find meaning or purpose in your life. I think so. um, And I, I mean, just to give you an example. So I used to work in consulting before and it was great. It was very aligned to what I studied. Um, I was doing healthcare uh, management consulting. And since I'd studied biomedical science and management, it was obviously the, right sort of career path but while I was working there I just realized that I didn't see the end result of what I was creating or producing or my ideas and that sort of didn't drive me so um even though I was like good at what I was doing I wasn't feeling accomplished at the end of the day because I didn't know what the value of my work was so something that's when I realized that what drives me is actually seeing um you know, impact of my decisions, impact of my ideas and like bringing them to life. And that's when I realized like entrepreneurship is something that was more suited to me versus, um, you know, maybe just creating, researching and creating slide decks and things like that. So I think it's just a process of self-discovery and a bit of trial and error.
1: Yeah. And I think that like for everyone, you find a sweet spot between what you're good at, what the world needs and what you want to give to the world. So if you if you think of a Venn diagram, that becomes like sort of the intersection point because, you know, it's very easy when you're growing up and stuff to either think you're very good at many things or not good at anything at all. And obviously that's not true. I think that there's everything. Each person has a set of unique talents and depending on what they would like to contribute, like you mentioned, right? Like you might be an extremely talented mimic but if that's not the legacy that you want to leave in the world, then that's not what you have to do. So um, I think it was the same thing for us. It was really, or for me, it was really a question of like, when, the, when there are so many options and there, you know, I had so many friends who went into jobs and who were doing like consulting and who were doing banking, finance, and really like high powered, amazing sounding things. But I, I also never, I wanted to do something where I felt like I was being able to use the privilege that I had to benefit people who didn't have that same level of privilege or whatever, right? Like what's the point of my education and my exposure and all of that, if I'm just helping other people become more powerful? What about there's a whole, because I did a lot of social service, like from high school all the way through college and even, so I was constantly always thinking about, but what can I contribute to improve the lives of people who don't have the ability to do it for themselves? And so for me, that was a really important factor. So I decided very early that I wanted to be in the social sector. And then I did a lot of different things in the social sector where I was teaching and I was uh, giving grants and I was looking at CS and things. And then I realized that, okay, hey, there's this big gap over here that we kind of need to fill. And then I was like, but well, why am I waiting for someone else to fill it? Um, if we can just fill it ourselves. And we just stumbled upon the discovery and it, it worked out well that we were both so aligned on it. And that's
0: how I guess we found about this. I really hope I can use this to find my purpose in life, but yeah. Another question which I want to ask you all was, you know, as people age, they tend to lose the ability to learn. So like from a teenager's perspective, like my perspective, I was very curious and knowing what are some practices that you all follow, which can help on keeping on learning and growing while we age.
1: Um, I think the best thing to do is to surround yourself with young people if <laughs> <laughs> you're worried about it being a factor of age. No, but honestly, I don't think, I think at least in this day and age, in the way that we've all grown up and how the world is changing around us all of the time, um, I don't think you, I think if you decide that you don't want to learn anymore, you, you're not going to grow. You know, like it's impossible. Things are changing. What the world achieved between like and? 2000 is what the world has already achieved between 2000 to 2010 the advancements that are happening on front mean that in order to keep the world you have to be open to learning right like no one had ever heard of like cryptocurrency no one had even heard of like whatsapp no one had heard of facebook no one had heard of email no one had heard of any of these things for like thousands of years before us and like grandmothers who can probably WhatsApp better than we can. There's all this discussion on the metaverse. So at any point in time, if you think that you can stop learning, it means that you're going to stop growing. So in terms of this, I don't think we have any practice being open, listening, paying attention to what's happening around you and genuinely engaging in conversation with people, young, old, different walks of life. It's so nice that Okay, not necessarily in the pandemic, but in general, because we live in a big melt like Bombay, we have the opportunity to be exposed to so many different groups of people, different types of people, different experiences. Um, As long as you leave yourself open to them, you're always, whether you want to or not,
2: is what I think. Absolutely. Just to add to that, I think just... um. I think the minute you make yourself adaptable to change, you will learn because I think change really teaches you a lot. Like even in terms, whether it's like technology or whether it's anything, you just, um, in order to be able to change and be effective in a new environment, you need to be able to learn things, right? So you need to be sort of open to both learning and change. And I think you can learn from anything and anyone around you um there's nothing like you know you need to be in school or college or have a, be in a formal education system to be able to learn um you learn from i mean for us we learn from obviously our mentors we learn from our um current you know team we learn from our parents you learn from tv you learn from tv shows um you know, earlier it used to only be books, but now there are things like podcasts and like you could be walking in a park and listening to something and you're still learning, right? So I just think being open-minded and adaptable to change and you'll be able to learn.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think for me, one of the ways of learning is reading. And secondly, is having these conversations by having these incredible guests on my podcast. So these are two ways which I follow to continuously learn.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's like different things work for different people. So you just kind of need to figure out what works for you.
0: What would be your last advice for anyone who is watching or listening to this podcast?
1: Go volunteer. It's (laughs) (laughs) win-win.
0: Yeah,
2: definitely. I think it would be like try your hand at volunteering. You'll probably get more than you end up giving so um, that would be my advice I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of people haven't tried their hand at it
0: (laughs) okay thank you so much for joining in I had an amazing time talking to y'all and it was great having y'all.
1: yeah thank Thank you you so much thank you so much